0: So our teacher is uh, Tony Bernhard, and he's a graduate of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center Community Dharma Leaders Program. He sits on the planning committee for the Sati Center and leads sitting groups and teaches Dharma in Davis, California. Thank you, Tony.
1: Yeah. I'm really pleased to be here, and I thought I would talk this morning about um, the thicket of views, thicket of views. For a city boy, the word thicket—that's me, city boy. The word thicket was the only thing I knew about a thicket when I was growing up was that that was the place Bambi went to hide. Um, And and I guess Bambi went there because you couldn't you couldn't see in or you couldn't see out. It was a place to hide. Um, So the concept of the thicket of um, views—it's a phrase that the Buddha used. Views, by views, sometimes we think, or I think anyway, initially, uh, point of view, um, opinion, um, but I think it goes a bit deeper than that. Um, I always have, every time I check out at the supermarket, I have a, a, a grinding moment when the, when the checker says, How are you? You know, because I, I don't think they really. <laughs> You know, so I've experimented with all kinds of of uh, of, of responses, um, and at one point I I was uh, greeted by a young woman who asked how I was, and I said, or how things how how are how are you how are things going? I said, well things are looking up, and she said, oh oh good you're not one of those end of the world types. I said, no no. She said, good I'm really happy. She said, because I'm getting married, and I'd hate to think the world was about to come to an end so I said well you know the universe has been around about 18 billion years we probably have a little bit more time and she said oh I don't think it's been around for 18 billion years well I didn't get it so I said well you're part of the 13 billion
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well no she she said no she said it's only been a couple thousand years she said because you know that radiocarbon dating stuff that isn't as accurate as they used to think so I bit (laughs) you know I was I was a goner right then and (laughs) and you know I was I was really upset my response was something about astronomical measurements but that that wasn't going to go anywhere either Um, and I, I was you know, I churned I over and over about that one for, my, my, my sangha heard about that for several weeks. <laughs> um, so, you know, views include all of the maps of experience, all the maps of the world that we use um, to orient ourselves. Um, you know, the world is round or flat if you're re- reading um, uh, Thomas Friedman. Uh, you know the sun rises in the east, or the, you know there's social justice is made up of this or that or um, experience is impermanent. you know we have a whole uh, variety of uh, ideas about the way things are thoughts about the way things are and these thoughts actually obscure our vision of of what's what's present for us um, there's there's a um, a wonderful little Indian aphorism that I like, which goes when a a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. Um, The views that we have, the ideas that we have about the world, the where we look to in the world, uh, are in a a real sense, um, uh, the the essence of delusion. I mean, the the essence of delusion is we think we know. (laughs) Um, And, and so the, ideas, the, the ideas, the thoughts we have about uh, how things are, obscure our vision, um, and are the heart of delusion. And they're harder to see because, uh, because we think we think we, we know rather than we think we don't know. Um, and these views, these ideas we have, are a major source of our suffering. Um, just the way we hold them and the way, the way we relate to them. Let me give you a couple of examples of how that might work. Um, uh, Bhante Gunaratna, who has written some books that you, some of you may have written, Mindfulness in Plain English, and uh, a really nice book on the Eightfold Path, tells a story in one of those books about how he was flying from, uh, I think it was somewhere in India to maybe Hong Kong or someplace like that. And he was sitting out and he looked out the window and the engine was on fire. And, you know, he said it actually looked kind of pretty. You know, it was enveloped in this blue glow with its orange hips and stuff. But as he was noticing that, the pilot came on and said something about how they were going to have to make an emergency landing. And um, the thought o- occurred to him, well, you know, if the plane is going down, if I'm going to die, I can die in terror or I can die not in terror. And he he lucked out. He decided to not be terrorized. But as he looked around the plane, everybody else was just like you'd expect, you know, crying and anguishing and, you know. Of course, the plane landed okay uh, because he told the story. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER but all of, the, all of the suffering of the people on board the plane was just the result of the thoughts that were in their head about what was going on. Um, you know, if you have an idea that you should be on time for appointments, and you're driving along and you're on your way to an appointment and all of a sudden the traffic starts thickening up, you, know, you start getting uptight. And then, when it starts really thickening up and you come to a halt we've all been there um, you know road rage comes from that um, you know that kind of suffering just from the, the idea that we have about about being on time uh, about the way we ought to be Another example you know we live look at look at where we are living just in terms of... Our, our physical surroundings, in terms of the history of human life. I mean, this is these are the heaven realms. This is as comfortable as it as we can get. And yet, you know, if those of us who have NPR on the uh, uh, the car radio or almost anything, you know, we've got the sound. We're living in the heaven realms, and we've got the soundtrack from hell. Um, we're we're not in the bliss of the heaven realms. Um, and it's from the, the, uh, the perspective, the ideas we have about what's going on, the judgments that we live with, that we relate to. Um, these ideas, these thoughts that we have, are things that we cling to. And of course, you know, it doesn't take very much practice with the Dharma, much study with the Dharma to... To get the idea that clinging is the source of our suffering, uh, and we wind up clinging to our, to our, our ideas to our thoughts, and when we 're talking about the realms of, of thinking and views and, and ideas, clinging is about believing belief is really what what, uh, what we 're getting to here so you know I, I couldn 't let go of my belief about astronomical measurements. Um, and and spent a couple of weeks readjusting myself. Uh, I never did run into her again. I kept looking out for her. I, I, oh well, um, but the the belief that we have in the the truth or falsity of a whole set of ideas um, is our. Is our clutching to them, is our holding on to them. We become slaves to the ideas that we have about how things are. And we become, we become slaves to them because we think they're true, and they become the source of um, a lot of unskillful intentions, which generate actions, which, you know, leave us, leave our experience a little lumpy. Um, We believe these ideas, even though, and we, you know, I, I know, I, I try to figure things out. I mean, it just, my mind tries to, even though I know that no thought, no idea is going to liberate my mind. You know, any thought that I grab onto and hold onto is certainly um, not going to be freeing particularly. No idea. We'll do that, but we still we still try to figure things out. Uh, we we um, we cling to what we think is true, or maybe we think something is true because we're clinging to it. It's an interesting. Uh, you know, do we think it's true because it appeals to us, or does it appeal to us because we think it's true? Um, the biggest view of course in the buddhas in the in the buddhist discussion the buddhist uh, the buddhist says the biggest view that, that traps us is the idea of self the idea of our self it's a thought um, and when we cling to it then we separate our self from everything that is not our self and it causes uh, it causes us it causes us suffering um, You know, that when we think something is true, we usually have standards for judging whether something is true or not. Um, and, of course, those standards we cling to as well. Um, so, so all of these things, uh, you know, in a, in a way it reminds me of um, you know, that last scene in the Titanic where everybody's trying to hold on to something that might float. Um... Even though they're all, you know, none of it's going to float forever. Um, but we do, we do clutch to our ideas and cling to our ideas and assert ourselves on the basis of, of the thinking. Um, there are four kinds of clinging, the Buddha said clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to rites and rituals, clinging to uh, notions of the self, and clinging to views. So it's one of the forms of clinging. Um, and the belief that we have uh, causes us, causes our suffering. So how do, we do, how do we handle, how do we relate to all these thoughts that we've got? Christopher Kittness, I, I always, always enjoyed uh, his, his directness. He says, um, everything you think is wrong. Um, which doesn't leave out much, um, but freedom—freedom freedom from the attachment to our views, to our thoughts, to our ideas—you um, know—freedom from that is is uh, is peace. It's the place of peace. Um, so we're talking a little bit about right view and what right view means. Sometimes the concept to use the word "right" as a you know suggests there's there's a right view and there's a wrong view and we'll hold on to the right view um, as opposed to the wrong view because that's the right. I mean, that's we'll cling to the right view. Um, but actually the word <coughs> is the Pali word is better translated uh, maybe in 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 a different way. Um, because I think it has to do not so much with uh, right versus wrong, but the way in which we hold the thoughts and ideas that we have. Um, you know, if we're trying to figure things out, the Buddha was pretty clear that the, the Dharma is not accessible through just through reasoning. So if we're struggling with our, with our thoughts uh, and trying to figure things out in the realm of our thinking, uh, it's not going to help us. Um, and yet the tools, the thinking, the thoughts that we have are not useless. I sort of think of them as power tools. Uh, they're very useful. They're very powerful. But they don't have safety guards on them. And they can, they can, be, uh, um, they can be harmful if we, if we don't use them Uh, with some some mindfulness and attention. The key I think is is the notion that that views ideas um, in addition to pointing to our experience and allowing us to map our experience and communicate about about it. Uh, They are also um, experience themselves. They're also objects of experience themselves. There's, I, I recall a phrase about Zen being a, a finger pointing at the moon, um, but you're lost if you mistake the finger for the moon. So our ideas are pointing at our experience, but if we mistake the view for the for the thing it's pointing to, of course we're we're going to get we're going to get trapped because views as things are also impermanent. They're incapable of providing any. Any uh, sustained satisfaction, and they don't exist independently. There's no independent uh, existence to them. We do. We do have in our in our cultural tradition this notion of the Platonic form, so that we think every time we have a notion of a of an equilateral triangle, it's the same equilateral triangle. Right, it's, you know, we miss the fact that we're creating it each time. We think we're going back to the same thing. So we think that these ideas are independent of ourselves and independent of, of, um, of our actions. And the thoughts, of course, we have aversion and attraction to them. We, we like certain ones and we don't like other ones. And the ones we like we think are true. And the ones we don't like we think are misguided. Uh, and of course, that goes for the people who hold them. <laughs> um, the Buddha, maybe the, perhaps the shortest Dharma talk he ever gave was was at a time when um, a guy named Bahia came up to him, He'd, but he had been practicing for a long time, I guess, and still had not awakened and finally heard the Buddha was in the neighborhood and he tracked him down. Just desperate to get the teachings from him. and he came across him in the in the morning and he went up to him and he said, You know, what's the story? And the Buddha said, Not now, Bahia, I'm on my alms rounds. And Bahia said, Well, he asked three times, and the Buddha said, You know, come back after lunch. And Bahia said, you know, he'd studied, he'd practiced, he'd paid attention, he said, Well, you know, things are impermanent, there may not be any after lunch. <laughs> so so the Buddha the Buddha said, okay, so the, the, the talk that he gave it was pretty, pretty brief. He said, you know, in the seeing, only the seeing. In the hearing, only the hearing. In the touching, the feeling, only the feeling. And smelling and tasting. And in the, in the cognizing, in the thinking, only the thinking. So the issue isn't whether a thought is true or false. It's just a thought. And if there is an issue that has to do with the quality of a view or a thought, it's how we hold it in our mind. What's the, what's the effect when we, when we hold this thought? Does it cause suffering? Does it cause uh, tension and pain? Or does it, cause, does it lead to liberation? Does it lead to freedom? So true and false isn't the standard, but although that's the that's the one that we the one that we use most commonly. Um, so the idea, I guess, is to is to hold the thoughts that we have, our views, to hold them provisionally, maybe in an open hand, you know, um, always with the with the uh, with the potential to trade them for I don't know. Zen uh, master uh, Sang Son used to, used to urge his students to cultivate don't know mind. Which I understand to be the mind that doesn't cling to a thought about the way things are. That doesn't grasp, that doesn't hold, that doesn't believe. Because that belief is what, is what gets us. Um, the Buddha once once said, um, "A bhikkhu whose mind is liberated sides with none and disputes with none." It's an interesting notion because when we cling to a particular belief or a thought, then we wind up. You know, Liking the people who agree with us, and, and disputing with the people who disagree. So, if we're interested in a measure of the ex- of our own delusion, um, so the measure you know, the measure might be uh, our siding with or disputing with uh, with others. He says, the bhikkhu employs the speech that's currently used in the world. Without adhering to it, which describes the way of holding these these thoughts. With you know, you use you use. It's like the power tools. You use them, but you don't cling to them. You don't clutch them. You don't grasp them. Um, Renunciation is not usually thought of as a practice that applies to our thoughts, to our ideas about the world. To our views, to the views about um, who we are, we like our views. They make us comfortable. You know, we use them. We clothe ourselves in them. Who are we? Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a therapist. I'm a athlete. I'm a politician. I'm a whatever you think you are. You know, we like them. They they give us they give us comfort. Um, But not holding them, not holding them, not adhering to them. We use them. You know, it's, it's. We all know that it's useful to, to, to know uh, about our our political affiliation or our gender or whatever when we're walking around in the world. But not, you know, to, to know that without clutching to it, to be ready to let any of that go at any moment. So right view, there is no right view as opposed to wrong view any more than there's a right answer to a Cohen, no. there's just, there's the experience we have and it includes the thoughts that we have, it includes the thoughts that arise and and that pass as well. So the Thick of the Views is the the cluster of thinking Through which we cannot see, and of course, as as I said at the beginning, we don't see because we think we're seeing. It's really, really tricky. So perhaps I will, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty um, far-ranging. It applies to any thought that arises, any idea. So perhaps what I'll do is to is to pause and um, see what kind of views <laughs> appear in regard to views. Please yeah, please.
3: If one had this intention to live this way and realize your thoughts are just thoughts, et cetera, what happens if your, <coughs> if your livelihood or your safety is dependent on you holding a certain view in the real world?
1: Can you give me an example?
3: Sure. Um, someone in a dispute that they need to take aside for themselves and position themselves in, in their own best interest to come out okay, and believing that they are right.
1: Well, we believe that we are right, and you know what we identify as our best interest is just a thought. It may not be. You know, um,
3: so how would that fly in the courts?
1: Ah, so so what you want what you want you to know is how can you win in court? You hire an attorney. <laughs> so you delegate. <laughs> um, the kind of actions that we take in the world you know, are, and the kind of ideas that we have in reaction to the world are often, almost frequently, in my experience, uh, generated from aversion. And so when you act out of aversion... Out of dispute, well, um, <laughs> you know, we're generating more crankiness out there, in one form or another. Uh, you may wind up winning your court battle, and I know people who have won and feel crummy. You know, it doesn't relieve the suffering that comes with uh, clinging to to. Uh, uh, one thought or another, um, it doesn't relieve the suffering. So winning in court, or winning in in, in an election, or winning in an argument, uh, doesn't necessarily produce peace. So if one's if you if the thought you have is that your interest is in winning, then you might very well win and if your thought is in ending suffering you'll have to see you know the kind of action that won't that won't necessarily increase suffering is is action that's generated from compassion and kindness and not necessarily from from uh, a struggle and a fight is that
3: Somewhat, I still see the person who lives this way coming out on the short end, then, because you would be have compassion for the other, and so on.
1: Um, well, it's a
3: tricky thing for a person who cares. We
1: we are attached to all kinds of ideas about the way we ought to be and how our lives should be, you know. And I mean, there's a there's a question: Do you have to be a monk with Three robes and a bowl in order to be (coughs) totally liberated. What does it mean? What does this liberation mean? Do we have to give up our furniture? I like my furniture. (laughs) I'm kind of attached to my furniture, and if I put it out on the street, I'd probably have to go buy some more. (laughs) So it has. You know, the the idea is to take a look at what we think our happiness depends on what being not on the short end of the stick depends upon. And, and to just look at that and to see what our relationship is to that
0: idea. Please. Um, I sort of um, want to differentiate a little bit between um, holding a view um, such as, for instance, let's take... Um, uh, like I hold the view that a child should not be sexually molested and um, I definitely don't want to let go of that view um, it seems like a um, a very skillful view to hold that now I can see that the suffering that arises if if uh, sexual molestation happens to a child that I know about it and uh and I can see that my thinking that that shouldn't have happened can create my own suffering um, if I think it shouldn't have happened. But the fact that I think it, uh, it's not a good thing to happen, I think it's a very healthy view. Um, and that that moves my heart and compassion to action um, and not causes suffering in myself. Uh, but, there, but it still seems like it's a view.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's certainly plenty of suffering in the world, and we can we don't have to be picky about where we look to find it. We can find it not just in sexual molestation. We can find it in you know pick, it, pick any any country, any place, uh, and almost any person. Um, and we can writhe in anguish at the thought that we have of what is going on in the Congo. Or, well, pick a place. You know, we don't, it doesn't have to be Iraq. Um, and, and the thought that we have, the thought about it's appropriate or not appropriate, whatever thought we have, is a, is a thing that we relate to as well. And it generates. We have a response to it. We have a response to the thought as well. Um, you now, I've I've recently uh, I've recently stopped listening to NPR, which was just an incredible. I mean, it was that was my soundtrack in the car. And I'm 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 a road warrior. Um, of I mean, I spent hours a day, and I used to listen. And I've stopped. And I don't think that you know it will make a difference practically in terms of what I do, how I vote, um, my actions in the world. But it, it's made—I found it's made a difference to the the churning in my mind, and that there was a there was a kind of um, you know I, I was really used to, addicted to, whatever you want to say, to that you know encountering whatever ideas were coming up and, and tussling with them and working out with them um, and letting letting that go is there's a lot of relief in that that doesn't mean that I'm going to encounter a situation where a child is in in danger and I'm going to say well that's just swell because I don't have opinions or views that I'm clinging to um, it's you know we there are all kinds of things we can Conjure up as appropriate to cling to, and we can—you know—there are a gazillion causes out there. You know, um, we can protest Norway's whale hunt, so we can protest. Uh, I mean, pick. There's, there's, plenty of suffering in the world to, to. Uh, um, to cringe at. So. I mean, it's not inappropriate, it's, uh, I'm not sure I even addressed the question. (laughs) I'm not sure what the question was. (laughs) Um,
0: The question was more, it seems like it's a view that's worth holding, that, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about clinging to it or getting, or suffering over it, I'm talking about that it's Uh still a view that's worth holding.
1: Well, the, the idea then would be to take a look at, you know, I, I said we, we have some things we think are true and some we think are false, and they're standards. You know, do we like science as a standard? Do we like our intuition as a standard? There are a whole variety of things we could depend on. And what is it that we think is worth, what is it that makes something worth holding? Not the view itself, but what is it that makes something worthwhile to hold? And take a look at whatever that is for us.
4: Please. Well, I think it, hello? Is this on? Okay. Um, It gets at the difference between, you know, grasping that notion that it's wrong for a child to be sexually molested versus holding that open in your hand. And if you hold that open in your hand, I think it gives you um, more freedom to see the issue clearly and to actually protect that child as opposed to grasping to that view, because grasping to that view, to me, comes with a lot of other baggage, like the molester is, you know, a terrible person, and, you know, I absolutely can't let this happen, um, which could lead to feelings of guilt and just being all riled up and um, not seeing it from a calm sort of, I want to say dispassionate. It's hard to be dispassionate about. Is that it? Yeah. Um, To sort of see the big picture and figure out a way to act um, in a wise mind kind of way, as opposed to a, a gut reaction to the, the pain and suffering.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: Please. In the Heart Sutra, uh, we're told to rely on Paramita, which is wisdom. How do you know whether you have wisdom or whether you have views? <laughs>
1: Good question. (laughs) I think it was um, Anatole France who said, I trust those who are looking for the truth, but not those who found it. Does that help? I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to to that effect. If you think you've got if you think you got it nailed down and figured out if you if you think you know you got wisdom in the in the uh, crosshairs there, mm-hmm, uh, probably not just just a guess please.
3: Uh, so on.
5: Uh, I'm an engineer and there's an expression, there's an expression we have up all over our desk that says, uh, experience comes from good judgment, good judgment comes from bad experience. And basically, and Tom Jeffers says this too, I mean, you're going to try stuff and you're going to make mistakes. And things I know in the past i thought were well, wise, I found that afterwards they weren't. And that's how you develop wisdom. You've got to be willing to fall down and make mistakes.
1: We are approaching the time at which I've been told that I have to stop, <laughs> but but uh, I'm I'm happy to continue as long as as uh, well maybe not as long as but for a while anyway. I, I have so I have
4: one comment. Mm-hmm. Um, this whole talk of yours is a view which you are attached to. I'm I'm <laughs> again, so I'm kind of caught up in. Um, you know, there, there is no way to live in this world without a view. You have to have a world view, or you have a whole bunch that are inconsistent. I don't know, but your whole talk is a view.
1: Well, you know, the Buddha said that his teaching, the Dharma, is a, is a raft to carry you to the other side, to awakening, to liberation. But that once, once you reach the other side, you don't carry the raft around with you once you've crossed the, the river or whatever it is you're crossing so the idea is not to abandon the teaching, but to recognize it as a teaching, and that when when the lesson has been learned, you can, you put it down. Um, now it's again it's a it's it's a it's a finger pointing, and um, so
4: at some point we would put this talk down.
1: Certainly. About five, five minutes
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> during your talk, I um, was thinking back to when I first started reading um, books on Buddhism and uh, and how difficult it was for me to accept some of the concepts such as uh, Everything we think we know, you know, is not a fact. It's just filtered through our six senses, um, which are only approximations. And then this idea about non-self, or the, we don't have any identity, uh, that was difficult too. So, you know, I, I, but time has passed. I've read more books and heard some Dharma talks and meditated some, and I, I can see where um, um, it's true. And that uh, one f- form of delusion is to um, is to hold hold to these fixed views. But then, while you were talking, also I had the thought that um, there's another kind of delusion, and that's not to realize how much we do know. Um, because some of the other Buddhist concepts that were not so difficult, uh, like like um, the fact that we're all intimately connected with each other and with everything in the universe and and compassion and um uh these when i when i read some of these concepts i i thought oh i've always known this um i've just forgotten it and need to be reminded so maybe there's such thing as inner knowledge and and um and what we need to do is is remember that right
1: <clears throat> it's, the tricky part is when you crystallize that knowledge in a concept thought and then it becomes a fundamentalist kind of uh, idea um, that tricks you into thinking that the idea is, is, is the knowledge is the wisdom, um, whereas the wisdom isn't, isn't in the idea itself.
6: It seems like there's like a real danger in taking the idea of kind of non-dualism, which is I think again it's sort of about experience, understood wisdom, rather than a rational concept and mapping into the rational domain. Um, I mean, in the fruits of the spiritual life, which is one of the first uh, suttas in the Dighini you know, the Buddha talks about, you know, all these other teachers at the time when they had these different views. And one of them was, um, well, you know, whatever you do, right, doesn't matter, you know, if you got, you know, commit heinous acts. That's, you know, the same thing as, I don't know, going and smelling a flower basically made this completely on un- no differentiation between um, this kind of non dual worldview and this, um, you know, very relative world that we live in. And I think this is a huge danger in, um, you know, as these teachings have been brought over the West. Um, I know lots of, I mean, um, various other people, Ken over Trumper, Rinpoche, like have all sort of commented, you know, this is something we really need to watch out for in terms of creeping into Western Buddhism, This, uh, say, you know, that this, you know, understood wisdom being mapped into this rational domain because of the things it gives rise to, it can right? give rise to the situation of paralysis where you can't act. You're like, oh, you know, I can't make a judgment between this being wise and this being unwise. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. <coughs> It seems like this is actually a very dangerous, pernicious, wrong view. Wrong view. If if taken the wrong way. Which view? Oh, okay. The. Okay.
1: You're talking about analysis paralysis.
6: (laughs) To to certain extent, but also, I mean, it's it sort of really conflicts with our understanding of karma as well, and I think also just this understanding of what, what suffering, what we mean by suffering coming from a wrong view, right? If I think, for example, like, you know, child molestation is a bad thing. Like, you know, me being sad that this is going on in the world is not suffering, you know. It's fine to experience that sadness. Like, I could, you know, just sit here in sort of, you know, a state of bliss and like, ah, that's wonderful. Everything is wonderful. And yeah, at a certain level, it's true. But at a level, another level, right, that isn't true. And this is, I think, the heart of the teaching. You know, it is and it isn't. But you kind of pick where you want to work from depending on where you're at.
2: <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm, the clock is staring at me and so is Inez. <laughs> um, please.
4: What this brings to mind for me is um, when we run into trouble, it's when we're trying to figure it out, when we're trying to attach meaning to the idea. And it's almost like there's it's an awareness of when you're being conscious and when you're not being conscious. And um, there's, a, I think, a story in Jack Kornfield's book, I think is where it is, about um, these people were on this retreat. And one of the teachers was sitting at a table during mealtime and he was reading and eating. Mm. So the students started ragging on him. You know, you're reading and you're eating. Shouldn't you just be reading or just be eating? And the teacher said, well, when you eat and read, eat and read. and I'm thinking that as long as we're conscious of the idea and that the idea is an idea and that we've attached meaning to the idea that that's really the purpose we're trying to rise above letting our lives live us and being part of life and being within life and being conscious of life we're consciously realizing that my view is A view that I'm holding on to, and a wise person is always going to be paying attention to when they want their view to change, but it's the meaning behind the view that is the reason that we attach to it. So, my two cents.
1: Thank you all for your attention.